The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. I am your host, Movie Mike. A very special episode for you this week. I have on Chris Sanders, who is the creator of Lilo and Stitch. He is also the voice of Stitch, which if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you know that Lilo and Stitch is my favorite Disney movie. So it was like getting to talk to a hero on this week's episode. I'll also give you my spoiler-free movie review of Thor Love and Thunder, my most anticipated movie of the summer. We have so much to get to on this episode. I'll waste no more of your time. If you guys and the movie crew are ready, let's just get started. Let's talk movies. In a world where everyone and their mother has a podcast, one man stands to infiltrate the ears of listeners like never before in a movie podcast. A man with so much movie knowledge, he's basically like a walking IMDb with glasses. From the Nashville Podcast Network, this is Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. You may not know his name, but you definitely know his work. My guest this week is Chris Sanders, who is the creator of Disney's Lilo and Stitch. He is also the voice of Stitch. And long before he wrote and directed this movie in 2002, He also worked as a story artist on Disney movies like The Rescuers Down Under, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, and really got his start when he was the head of the story on Mulan. Working on that movie led to him pitching his idea that he's had since the 80s of Lilo and Stitch. Lilo and Stitch was his first hit as a writer and director. And even after Lilo and Stitch, he went on to write and direct animated movies like How to Train Your Dragon and The Croods. So he's a super talented guy. If you're a fan of Lilo and Stitch or just a fan of Disney, I think you're going to love his story. So let's talk movies with Chris Sanders. I am on now with somebody I'm so excited to talk to. I'm on with Chris Sanders. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm doing really good. Now, a couple of things led me here to having you on the podcast. Lilo and Stitch has been my favorite Disney movie since I was a kid. And earlier this year, I was scrolling through TikTok and I see you there and I recognized you. And I didn't realize the backstory 
of Lilo and Stitch and how it came to be. So I knew once it hit that 20th anniversary, I had to reach out to you to get you on the podcast. Cool. Yeah, it's been really nice to do those TikToks. And um, that was just a response to, I don't remember what it was exactly, but I ran across somebody who really didn't know anything about where the movie came from. And that was that wake up call to me, realizing how much time had gone by and quite a few people didn't know the backstory to it. So it's been really fun to begin that series, dressing up some of the material, which a lot of the stuff just with animators and animation, a lot of the stuff ends up in people's garages. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the archives, but I still have the original drawings and the original manuscripts that I used to pitch the project. So um, that's amongst the stuff that I was digging up and beginning to put up on uh, on TikTok so that people could take a look at it. And that's so cool to see. And I want to get to the movie, but I kind of want to start back at the beginning when you were growing up in Colorado. What made you fall in love with animation? I loved Straw. My dad, I thought, was a great artist. He did um, paintings and he would draw like these Buck Rogers style spaceships. And I remember one day he said, there's a limit to what you can build, but you can draw anything. And that really stuck with me. And um, and so I really, I always had a love to a, a love of drawing. It didn't occur to me that I could turn that into a career until, you know, many years later, I was uh, nearing the end of high school trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. And my grandmother was reading an article in the Denver Post, which was our local newspaper. And she was reading this article all about how Disney Studios was running low on animators. They were retiring and they were looking for a way to replenish their ranks. They created an animation program at this school in California called CalArts. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's where I want to go. So I'd always liked animation. I'd enjoyed it, but I'd never thought of it as a possible career path until she told me about that school. And that's the only place I applied. And how did you know you were, it went from just you just drawing to like, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this. Like, this is something I could actually pursue and go to that school. You don't know. Um, I was really crossing my fingers that my drawings were good enough. I think a lot of kids at CalArts were like some of the local best artists from where they came from. So I was not unusual in that. Like I did cartoons for my school newspaper. So when they needed cartoons, people would come to me at, at Arvada High School. And, um, you know, when they needed a mascot drawn or a t-shirt drawn or something like that. Likewise, a lot of the kids I ended up with in the classic Kyle Arts, same kind of thing. And that was really sobering because like I went from being, I thought, a person who could draw pretty well to being sobered when I'm sitting next to somebody <laughs> named Kelly Asbury. Kelly Asbury, who became a good friend of mine. And he just drew so much better than I did. I thought he just drew amazingly well. And he drew with a pen because he had this confidence. And I always drew with a pencil because I was never really sure. I was like, I want to erase this and move things around. And he took out this ink pen and he would just draw what he wanted. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he's so much better than I am, right? Um, And you know, it's still that way. I think one of the things that's really cool about the animation industry is that if you ever are looking for inspiration, just walk down the hall. There's somebody down that hall that's going to be way better at stuff than you are. And so inspiration abounds. I mean, in turn, that makes you become better. You see other people just crushing it and you're like, I want to get to that level. I want to be that good too. I want to crank out my best ideas so I can get the better jobs and get the things I want to achieve, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Because nobody, I mean, there's no, nobody draws the best. Everybody draws, you know, their own things in their own ways and stuff like that. And it's that great, it's that great coming together of all those different artistic styles where you get these wonderful films and you get these wonderful projects and stuff like that. If I went back in time and, and changed out one single artist on one of these films, the film would be a little bit different. So they are, they are literally a, a, a conglomeration of the talents that were gathered for that particular project. So you go out to this school and how long is it until you get your first paid job to where, okay, this is turning into my career? A lot of people would leave school at that time early. A lot of people graduated um, their third year. Um, I didn't. I stuck with it for four years. I was very aware that this was my last chance to go to school before I would go and start working for the rest of my life. So I hung in there for the four years. At the time that I graduated, oddly enough, Disney Studios was no longer hiring. So the place I was really hoping to go was not an option at that point. So I did find a job at Marvel Productions. Now, it wasn't the comic book part of Marvel. It was the animation side of it. And they did Saturday morning cartoons. I got a job on the Muppet Babies. Now, the funny thing about that is that one of the things they would always tell us in CalArts is draw, 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 draw every day, draw things that you see around you. It'll make you a better artist. Well, I didn't want to draw the things I saw around me. I didn't want to draw chairs. I didn't want to draw tables. I didn't want to draw people's shoes. You know, uh, I wanted to draw the stuff that I wanted to draw. The funny thing is at Marvel Productions on the Muppet Babies show, I was in the model department, which meant anything that was going to be in the cartoon had to be drawn first as a turn so that they could color it and model it and send it overseas so that everything would be on model. So the funny thing is my first job was really drawing things that I had avoided drawing in the past. I drew chairs and tables and shoes and dresses and everyday objects, a lot of them, right? And it was amazing training. So you're working at Marvel and I saw that you said that you had the first drawing of Stitch in 1981. What about that story? What about that sketch made you come back to it years later when you finally get this opportunity to create this story for Disney? I had worked a little bit on it in private. I wanted to do a children's book. And what I realized after working on it for a while in private, you know, on my own time, was that the story was too big to fit into a normally formatted children's book. I didn't think I could boil this thing down to say 17 pages or 32 pages. It just seemed too big. Um, so the idea was bigger than the book. Um, so years later, I was in the waning days of the production of Mulan. We made that film at the Florida studio. So I was out in Florida and the president of feature animation at that time, Tom Schumacher, was out visiting. And um, he and I and everybody had gone through a lot making this film. It had been quite the adventure. I think that my performance on that film had earned me, <laughs> had earned me a certain amount of, I guess, latitude to maybe do my own movie. And Tom was out visiting uh, Florida and he said, is there anything that you would want to do next? And pretty much right there at dinner, I said, oh, no, no, not. A well, wait a minute. Okay, you know, there is this one thing. There was this story, right? And so I was able to think about it for a little bit. And the next time he visited, he said, well, and I was trying to work up a pitch for it, you know, and, and, uh, and he said, well, go ahead and just tell me about it. And I said, well, I'm not really ready. And he goes, no, just come on, just do it. You know, and I thought, oh. Here it goes. Here goes my <laughs> idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna like it's it's gonna be all over in the next like in the next three minutes. And I pitched it, just verbally threw it out there. And I really got my very first and biggest note of all, which was the story that I had concocted was all about this strange little creature who was living in a forest and he didn't 
he had come from. He was a mystery to everything around him, but he was also a bit of a mystery to himself. And the story was all about how he was figuring out who he was. And he was frightening looking, a bit of a monster, right? And Tom said, I like this story, but I would have a suggestion. The animal world is, in a sense, already alien to us. So placing this alien being in the animal world doesn't get you the kind of contrast that you might want. I would suggest you place this monster in the human world. Boom, there it was. I thought that was a great idea. So that was the first biggest note that Lilo and Stitch ever got. Now, this is before it was Lilo and Stitch, before they were in Hawaii. That was when I left and started working on the idea once I returned to California. And that's where I got, I got this uh, uh, motel room out in Palm Springs at this resort. And I locked myself in this room for three days. And all I did was draw and write because I wanted to create a bit of a document because it was going to be about an alien. And I thought, you know what? Those are the days where people were making a lot of monstery kind of alien movies. And I thought, if you say the word alien in a development meeting or a pitch, a lot of people are going to get this instant idea of what an alien is. And I thought, okay, if I don't draw this, they're going to get maybe the wrong idea. So if I draw this whole thing out and they say no to it, at least they're saying no to the idea that was my idea. So it's a legitimate no. <laughs> so, um, so after those three days, what occurred to me was that in a sense, I had finally created that children's book that I had tried to create so many years before and had abandoned. That's really interesting to me because I was rewatching it. And I realized how hard it must have been to pitch an idea about this alien creature. Doesn't really say a whole lot of words. So to hear you say that you took that idea, placed it into Hawaii, and suddenly it made sense. I, you know, this is where you've really got to understand like how important a producer and the head of a studio are to your future. They can make or break a, an idea. And in this case, Tom Schumacher, he wanted to make this film. And... Um, he that was the next big thing was that it's a it's a thing I'm going to put on a TikTok uh, really soon and I'm working on that one right now. He told me after the development department looked at it that they all like universally liked the idea and he said I walked into his office uh, into his office and he said I will make this film on one condition that it look like you drew it and that was you know very exciting and flattering but at that point I I didn't even know what to do because I thought well what do I even draw like I just draw like everybody else. A girl who was working at the studio, Sue Nichols, who was an amazing artist, she also came from CalArts, she did a two-week analysis of my art style, and she created two documents called Surfing the Sanders Style, and it explained how I drew. Well, nobody was more interested to read these than I was, and I was absolutely fascinated. It turns out there were things that were governing my style that existed that I didn't really even realize I was doing. But she saw them and she had like dissected the whole thing. So that began. And that's one of the reasons that Lilo and Stitch is a highly unusual film. It is more unusual than people really, I think, may, may realize. Because it is not only a very Miyazaki-style story that is extremely hard to nail down. You know, it's a smaller story. And it's really you know, kind of strange, based very, very much on quirky, unusual characters, really, you know, these personalities are the, are the whole movie, but also that it's in an individual artist's style. And that's, I don't think that's anything that has happened really before or since, at least with an artist inside the studio. They've based films on, say, like Isaac, uh, Isaac um, Ivan Durrell. Uh, Sleeping Beauty is based very much on Ivan Durrell, for example. Um, but he was an outside creator. So it's one of the reasons that that's such an unusual film. So when do you sit down to 
create what is going to be Lilo and Stitch. You have to create Lilo. When does it get that title? When does it get that final art? It was Lilo and Stitch by the time it was in that first pitch book. So when I went away to Palm Springs, by that point, I had made the decision to place the film in Hawaii. I had named the characters Lilo and Stitch, and I had no connections to Hawaii at that point. So I pulled Lilo's name off of a roadmap that I had from Hawaii. There's a Lilo Lane, and I saw that. So this is one of those strange things. I didn't know what that word meant. It sounded like a name. It turns out it's not a name, but it's the it's the word for lost. So in a really strange way, I found the right word to make that her name. Um, the same with Nani. I just, I again, I, I looked around for names on a roadmap. Later on uh, in the making of the film, we did engage as many people as we could from Hawaii because we're talking about it. We're trotting into a culture that we are not part of. And if you're going to do that, you really have to connect with people that know what the deal is, that know what they're doing for the music, for the culture, for the dialogue, for your voices as much as you can. So, um, and so we did, we, we met a, a huge number of people who became our guides to making the film um, be respectful. Going into the start of making this movie, at what point did you become the voice of Stitch? Were you always going to be Stitch or was that a voice that just existed in your head? Where did that come from? It's sort of both. It was a, it was a voice that I had used up to that point to call people on the telephone with and annoy them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was actually Dean, my co-director. So uh, along the lines of your last question, one of the first things you do is you find a co-director that you trust. And I had learned to trust Dean and to, part and to partner with Dean during the making of Mulan. And Dean was extremely smart and amazing, a natural when it came to storytelling. He was a natural storyteller, a great writer, a wonderful story artist. Um, and he has very good structural knowledge and structural instincts. So uh, so I partnered with him immediately. Um, as soon as we decided to do the project, I, I saw him out and we, we agreed to co-direct uh, on the film. Dean suggested that I be the voice of Stitch. One of the main reasons was that we wanted, originally we didn't want Stitch to even speak. We were like, oh, he's going to be like Dumbo. We'll do the whole film and he will just be a character that works in pantomime. Later on, it became obvious that he was going to have to speak. And in fact, he would have some key lines during the film. Well, at that point we thought, okay, we're going to, we're going to have to get a voice, but you don't want to necessarily hire somebody like Robert Redford or Danny DeVito and then worry about like, well, how's the studio going to react when they realize this character only says like 15 things and will they then start to push for like, well, if he's, you know, if we're going to hire Robert Redford, we want to, you know, we want Robert Redford. We want like a lot of lines. And we were afraid that that might begin to really be the tail that wagged the dog as far as the, the making of the film. So Dean suggested, he's like, you know what? Why don't you just do the voice? You use that voice when you pitch your boards. So why don't you just do it? And then we'll avoid any problem because, you know, you're not a real actor. So, so nobody's, no one's going to ask for more of you. Right. So we did do that. And there came a moment, there was only one moment that I felt a little stressed about it. And that was uh, when we realized that near the very end of the film, Stitch would have this one very important line where he talks about this family that he found and mm -hmm. it was little and it was broken, but it was still good. And that verged on real acting. And so I thought, I don't know if I can do this on that day. I came to Dean and I said, Today, I'm an actor, and you're going to be the director, the, the only director. And I'm going to go in that booth, and you tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And if I can't pull this off, then we'll find somebody else to do the voice. 
And so we did like Dean directed me. I did everything he asked. And before long he said, okay, I think we got it. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yeah, I think we got it. And it, it worked okay. You brought up my favorite scene in the entire movie. I think it's because of that. It's that moment in the movie where everything kind of hits me emotionally. And I, I remember watching it as a kid and having that same kind of feeling of stitch of being that person who was filled with rage in a place that he didn't understand, didn't understand himself. But all of a sudden he had this family now. I think that's the most perfect scene in any Disney movie I've seen. So it's cool how that came together and how you had to go dig out your acting abilities in that. (laughs) (laughs) I did my best. I really tried hard that day. I, I still remember that day. This is my family. I found it all on my own. It's little and broken, but still good. Yeah, still good. So when people find out you're the voice of Stitch, do they immediately ask you to do it? I do get asked to do it a lot. <laughs> it was a period, there were, I had some surgery on my neck at one point, period of time, about a year I couldn't do it. But then I got back to doing it and uh, I still do it. I get called up about at least once a month to come in and do, I do voices for toys and for like parades things for cruise ships, all Disney stuff. It's fun. I told myself if I ever had you on the podcast, I would show you my voice. And it's actually that scene that I do. So I would like to let you hear this and then judge my abilities afterwards and let me know how I can make it better. All right. Okay. All right. So it's that scene. This is my family. I found it all on my own. It's little and broken, but still good. Yeah, still good. How's that? Oh, that's really good. <laughs> that's very nice. How do you get the laugh though? Because I've been trying this impression for a while, but that laugh isn't like, it's hard to do. The big laugh is painful. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is one. If you're doing a recording session, you save that for the very end. Like, okay, we'll save all the screaming and the laughs for the end. And then we'll do, we'll do, then you can just take it to the wall. And if you blow your voice out, you're fine. <laughs> Is that your new Lexus RX? RX plug-in hybrid. So it runs all electric? Yeah, for short trips. And can switch to gas for long. Wow. What does your range anxiety therapist say? Dr. Feeney? Uh-huh. He says my RX cured me. No more range anxiety therapy. Nope. Well, you're an inspiration to us all. The best-selling Lexus RX lineup. Now with a plug-in hybrid. Click the banner to discover more. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, 
We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Back to it being the 20th anniversary of the movie. When you go back, what moment sticks out to you as being the most fun part of the entire process? I mean, the part of the process that I've always loved is music. Dean and I, and uh, Lilo and Stitch was a big part of this, have really, I've always loved music and, and I listen to music. I have never written a scene in a movie without listening to music while I worked on that scene. I have also boarded uh, pieces of movies to music. And there are still there are still pieces of music that if you play them while you watch a piece of a Disney movie, it lines up pretty much exactly. Um, like if you go to the soundtrack for a movie called The Mission, there's a there's a track from that. I believe it's I believe the track is The Mission. And um, if you listen to that while you watch the scene where Mufasa's ghost speaks to Simba, it works really really well because that's the that's the music I I listened to when I boarded the scene. And I pitched that scene to the directors with that music. There are scenes in Beauty and the Beast. I can show you the, the music that those were done to. So anyway, so same with Lilo and Stitch. I would listen to music as I write these scenes. And nothing was more exciting to us than we would when we would partner with somebody like Alan Silvestri, who was going to be writing the score. And uh, one of the things that Dean, Lilo and Stitch was made for a lower budget than movies were being made for at the time. We felt we could buy our story freedom by lowering the budget, which is exactly what happened. But one of the things that both Dean and I told the producers and asked the studio, carve off enough money to buy the best score money can buy, and we will make the film for whatever is left over. And that's exactly what they did. So we got Alan Silvestri, and there was this really important day um, where we were looking at the boards, and Alan Silvestri was looking at the whole film on board and looking at the outline. And he said, I really like this movie. And he had a few suggestions, but he said, there's one thing I didn't see. I didn't see the moment where Stitch turns from bad to good because Stitch is a villain that becomes a hero. And that was what the base, that was really the basis of the whole story. He's the first, and I think at this point, still the only Disney villain who then becomes the hero of the story. And Alan was like, well, where does that happen? And both Dean and I at that point were like, oh, well, yeah, we tried to write it. We couldn't really figure it out. And it sort of happens here, kind of between these two shots. And suddenly both Dean and I, I think, were confronted with the reality that we hadn't really been able to put it up there on the boards. And I'll never forget what, what Alan said. We, we basically told Alan we didn't know how to do it. And he said, put it on screen and I'll do it. And I guess we were saying we couldn't, we didn't know how to say it. And he said, put it on screen and I'll say it. And he said it with music. And so there's a moment where Nani realizes that they can't retrieve Lilo and she's crying and Stitch is watching her. And if you listen, there's a subtle change in the music and Stitch walks up to her and he speaks to her. And that's the moment of change. And what we realized at that point was that music does the heaviest lifting of all when it comes to story. And music is unassailable. No one's going to laugh at music. You can, you can throw an awkward line in, 
or an awkward shot and it gets an inadvertent laugh and you've kind of blown it, but nobody laughs at music. And um, so Alan just like taught us such an incredibly important lesson that day. And we really took that to heart. So later on, when Dean and I were working on how to train your dragon, one of the first things we do now is we carve out a house for music in different places in the film. So in how to train your dragon in that scene where uh, hiccup is going to um, bond and, 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 and um, he's going to cross this divide and form a connection to this dragon, no dialogue. It's all music. And we just, no, the characters shut up. <laughs> all the characters shut up and music takes over. And that's just something that Dean and I really believe in now. And we learned that on Lilo and Stitch. So, so was the love for Elvis music always a part of the story? Or did that come along when you were trying to find the music? I was a big Elvis fan. So I simply gave that, I imprinted that on Lilo. And it was really cool because we actually had to engage with the Elvis estate. Um, we had done three things that you were not allowed to do without permission. We had shown an image of Elvis. We had used his lyrics and we had also used his music. And you can't do any of those things without permission. <laughs> so um, so there, there, there came a day when we had, we had to approach the Elvis estate and uh, they sent what we call the, uh, the Memphis Mafia down to look at the movie. And all these people from the Elvis estate traveled to California and they came into the theater one day. And I'll never forget, most of them were wearing dark glasses. They were wearing sunglasses, even in the movie theater as they watched the movie. It was exactly as you think it would be. And they watched the movie and they came out and they said, we're stoked. We love this movie. We're going to approve all the stuff you want to do. And one of the cool things, we actually got a party at the Elvis estate after the movie was done. And Dean and I received a key to the city of the city of Memphis. And we got a private tour of the Elvis estate. And we even got a trip to one of their archive buildings where they have all of Elvis's actual stuff. There are four archive buildings. They are in tornado proof um, uh, structures. Um, one of them is on the property and that's the one that we were able to go into. And um, we were there in all these, amongst all these shelves that had all these archival boxes. And we were like, so what's in all of these? And they're like, well, a lot of stuff. And, and we said, what should we look at? And they said, well, I don't know, just pick a box. And so <laughs> Dean, Dean picked a box and they opened it up and they said, oh, these are all the things that were on Elvis's countertop in his bathroom when he died. And we simply packed them all up. And they had a bottle of his high karate aftershave that, that he had used. And they, they opened it up and let us smell it. And so we saw, we saw some of his jumpsuits. We saw a pair of boxing gloves that Muhammad Ali had given him. It was amazing. Anyway, they were amazing. They were so kind and so generous. And it was just such a great thing that we, we partnered with them. Anyway, one of those great lucky things. One of my other favorite parts of the movie is how Lilo is like a five, six-year-old girl, but sometimes has like these really dark, almost much older thoughts than her. How is that writing in things of like, leave me alone here to die? Like, how do you kind of approach that to make it kind of believable that it's a kid saying this? You know, um, that was Dean's line in Dean's scene. Dean also did the, um, he invented the whole, uh, my friends need to be punished. And she's sticking <laughs> those spoons in the, uh, in the pickle jar. That was just Dean and my sensibility. But one of the things we had, we did was we, um, our voice actor was a girl named DeVay Chase. And we, in, we, um, we auditioned a lot of uh, young actors to try to find the right voice. It was one of those, you'll know it when you know it. And when DeVay came in, she had this really very interesting way of delivering her lines. She had a little bit of this sort of deadpan kind of delivery. And we were like, that's Lilo. 
that's her. And so it's one of those things that like you write it and then you meet the voice and hearing the voice helps you write it. So it's this kind of a snowball effect, but I must credit Dean for that really great scene. That was entirely his, he wrote it and he even storyboarded it. So we've seen sequel Lilo and Stitch. We've seen the TV series, but now with Disney plus, will there ever be any other installment of Lilo and Stitch? I think there will be. I think that, I mean, he's a very, very popular character. One of the things that's been very uh, uh, amazing is that um, I always hoped to pitch and create a movie that had a character that really endured. And one of the things that I absolutely am delighted with is whenever I go to Disney um, properties, I can go to Disney World or I can go to um, uh, Disneyland and you'll walk into stores and there are not just Stitch products. Sometimes there are entire sections of the store that are literally devoted just to him. And that is just mind blowing. And I am so, so proud of that. And it's so weird too, because I'm like, I drew him one day in Palm Springs. I have the first drawing of him. And now he's been reproduced millions of times. And he'll, a lot, a lot of times there'll be like a product that'll have Mickey, Donald and Stitch. And it's like, oh my God, like he's really like, he's there. Right. So <laughs> I, um, yeah, I've been writing little things because I thought, you know, he's part of the Disney universe now. And just a really quick side note, the whole ad campaign that we introduced the movie with was an, an ad campaign that Dean and I thought up. Oh, with him placing Dean, in other like movie posters? Yes, because as the movie was coming close to release and we were thinking about how we were going to market it, we were sitting around one day talking about this whole thing. And I said out loud, isn't it weird? This little character that we started all by ourselves is going is about to invade the Disney universe. And from now on, when they do a lineup of Disney characters, Stitch will always have to be in there with them. And the idea like and the idea of like oh him invading the Disney universe, we all well wouldn't it be funny if we did the whole opening to Lion King and when they held the, the <laughs> little cub up it wasn't the cub but it was Stitch and everybody just ran away. And the whole idea just made us laugh. So we boarded that out um and we went to this meeting with Dick Cook who uh who was at, on the main lot and he was in charge of these things and uh he was uh, an executive there and we pitched it and it got a big laugh dick cook said i like this and then they said can we do more and so we started kicking around ideas of having him um show up in the little mermaid and aladdin and beauty and the beast and um which means we had to go back and re-record those actors with new lines and that was really funny because none of them were super stoked about it. Like they, they, I think it was the idea of, it wasn't like we didn't want to do it. They were very professional and they were very, very generous and they did a great job. I think it was more the idea of like, what's this thing doing in my movie? And the funniest one was when we uh, recorded Belle, she was on speakerphone and she was in New York. So we were recording her remotely. And the funny thing was because she was just on speakerphone, it was impossible not to imagine that the actual Belle was at the other end of the line talking to you because you couldn't see her. So in my mind, it's Belle. It's the cartoon character. And I remember we said, okay, this is what's, this is the idea. Stitch is going to show up and he's going to ruin your special dance with Beast. And then you're going to say, I'll be in my room. And you're, and you're upset. And then there was, a, there was a beat and she said, so I'm mad at him? <laughs> and he said, well, uh, you're disappointed, right? And she'd go, okay. And so she would do the line and she'd say, I'll be in my room. And she had this really sort of upbeat delivery. And we said, well, I think you're more disappointed than that, right? So we eventually got to the place where she felt very, very upset, you know, but it was just so sweet and so cute because she was like, wait, I'm mad. <laughs> and it was just, it was so, it was great. And they were, and what, it, again, it was so cool because I got to meet those 
actors. I never thought I'd meet them, but that was so cool. I mean, you created an iconic character, got to work with people who are also iconic characters. It's amazing to see that all come together. And I can't wait to see what comes next. And hopefully I'll get to talk to you again once that comes around. I really appreciate the time. Absolutely. If you ever want to do a follow-up, I'm so sorry we were late on this because oh, we got our time zones mixed up. <laughs> but yeah, let's do that. That would be fantastic. I really enjoyed chatting with you so much. Well, thanks, Chris. Have a good day. You too. I'll talk to you soon. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Let's get into it now. A spoiler-free review of Thor Love and Thunder, my most anticipated movie of the summer. Did it live up to my expectations? Because you have Chris Hemsworth back as Thor, Taika Waititi back directing this one, who directed Thor Ragnarok. And most importantly, you have Natalie Portman reprising her role as Dr. Jane Foster. But not only that, she becomes the mighty Thor in this movie. Not a spoiler, that's all in the trailer. So before we get into what I thought about this movie, we'll hear just a little bit of that now. Thor Odinson. He was no ordinary man. He was a god. After saving planet Earth for the 500th time, Thor set off on a new journey. Well, he got in shape. He went from dad bod to god bod. And after all that... Mjolnir. 
he reclaimed his title as the one and only Thor. Oh, spoke too soon. Jane? And I have to say, even though I knew it was coming, even though I saw it in the trailer, the moment that Natalie Portman became Mighty Thor felt awesome to me. I'll get into why I loved that part of the movie and why I didn't like that part of the movie all at the same time. But where this movie takes place, it's Thor who is struggling to find inner peace. He's trying to find himself. He doesn't want to be Thor anymore. He's basically sad Thor, and he has transformed since the last time we saw him as dad bod Thor, and he's with his old friends, the Guardians of the Galaxy. So you have Thor here struggling to find himself, but above all, the evil that is approaching is a new villain called Gore, the God Butcher, played by Christian Bale. He is this galactic killer who is trying to kill every single god around. It is Thor's mission now to take down Gore, the God Butcher, and he enlists the help of King Valkyrie, his friend Korg, who is also voiced by the director Taika Waititi, and then of course his ex-girlfriend Jane Foster. Now some people ask me, do you have to watch all the other Thor movies to understand this one? I don't think so. I think this movie in particular does a really good job at explaining the details you need to know about the relationship between Jane and Thor. Obviously, with any Marvel movie, you feel more invested if you've seen every other Marvel movie. If you have all the time to watch the other three Thor movies, which I do enjoy. And I say that because I believe that Thor actually has the best solo movies, second only to Spider-Man. Collectively now, this being the fourth Thor movie, I think they have the comedy, I think they have the action, and even coming full circle now on the love story. So I find them the most entertaining now, and the ones that I feel I can continue on and on, especially after this movie. And I had a lot of high expectations going into this movie because of that, because he is one of my favorite Marvel characters. And because I really love Thor Ragnarok so much, I felt like Chris Hemsworth really got the character down. The story was so perfect in that movie. And visually, that movie looked so amazing and kind of created this own new identity for Thor that I feel like that carried on through the rest of the Avengers movies and now coming back to his solo movies. That's why I was so excited for this one. And this one really met those expectations. I don't think it exceeded them in any way, but it met them. And much like Thor Ragnarok, this one was just as visually appealing and it kind of took a different approach on the style where Ragnarok had this kind of cosmic color palette which was very defining to that. I felt like this one was a little bit more comic book style, especially when it came to the costume and a lot of the wardrobe. I felt like Thor kind of went back to that more classic Thor look that you get in the first movie and also just more representative of what the comic books look like. And then you have paired with that what Thor movies do that no other real Marvel movie can pull off is the comedy. This movie is effortlessly funny to where Thor is actually a funny character that's unlike all the other Marvel humor, which for the most part is characters who aren't funny that say the occasional witty thing or the occasional like out of place line that makes it funny. That's kind of what Marvel humor has always been when it comes to like Captain America and Iron Man. They just say things that you wouldn't expect them to say and everybody laughs and it's funny. This movie was at the root of it a romantic comedy and i think that's why some people don't like it 
if you go into it expecting just your average Marvel movie, the kind of formulaic thing that they've been doing with all their superhero movies for a while now, which has worked and which I've loved for a very long time, but I'm kind of itching for something a little bit different. This movie didn't stick to that same type of formula. And what it really showed me is that Marvel can kind of exist by making movies in different genres and in different styles. I saw that with Doctor Strange until the Multiverse of Madness, which I didn't really love. I felt like that was Marvel's attempt to make a Marvel horror movie. This one, at the root of it, it really is a romantic comedy. And then you layer that with the superhero aspect, and then you layer that with action. It becomes a Marvel movie. So you just start checking off all the boxes here. You have the action, you have the acting, you have the characters, you have the costume, you have the humor. All those things are exactly what I was looking for. And then you wrap them up into the new Thor aesthetic, which I'm totally in love with and met all my expectations. Now, the part of the movie that I didn't like is it felt a little bit rushed within the first 20 or 30 minutes. And this movie is under two hours, which... I don't find myself saying this a lot, but I wish this movie was longer. I just felt the movie was trying to find its footing early on and kind of going between Gore the God Butcher's backstory into where Thor is now, into where Jane is. It was kind of just like, okay, what am I focusing on here? And then the moment she becomes Mighty Thor, it goes from just her being Dr. Jane Foster. Now she's Mighty Thor and everybody's just kind of cool with it. I wanted to see a little bit more there of her figuring out her powers, being a little bit more questioning of what is going on. She just kind of turns into Mighty Thor and everybody accepts it. Rest of the movie kind of moves on, which does create a pretty fast pace throughout the entire thing. So I felt at the root of it, it did help with everybody's attention span of once you get kind of comfortable in one thing, it's on to the next, on to the next. So it had that kind of feeling to it. So while some people are probably praising that a Marvel movie is under two hours, this one I wouldn't have minded if it would have gave like maybe 20 minutes more there in that first act. And then when it comes to the villain in this movie, Christian Bale, great for him. I love that they gave him a backstory. And while he is no Thanos by any means, he was a pretty good threat, which Marvel tends to have a lot of forgettable villains. I felt like this is one that 10 years down the road, I'm going to remember Christian Bale as Gore the God Butcher. And the only thing I didn't love was I felt like they should have given him more action sequences. I felt like his character really shined whenever he was the most menacing, whenever he felt like he was a very unstoppable force, like something to really be reckoned with. But I never had that moment in the movie that I felt like the villain was completely in control. So basically, my biggest criticisms of the movie is that I wanted more. But I guess as a Marvel fan, you want to leave us wanting more because I would go watch Thor 5 tomorrow if it came out. I think Marvel fans will be happy with this one, especially if you're a big Thor fan, which it's unusual to see movies get better with each installment, especially when you're making a fourth one. Usually by the third one, you're like, all right, I'm ready to cut the cord here. I'm all in for another Thor movie. I think they have come a really far way since the original Thor, which I did rewatch going into this movie which I still enjoy that movie. The only thing I don't like looking back on it is how weird they make Chris Hemsworth look in that movie. Like he has makeup and the hair and the wig just isn't completely there. Now Thor's look is completely perfect. 
And I think Chris Hemsworth should get a award for how ripped he got for this movie. He said it's the most cut he's ever been for any role, and it really shows. And somebody like his counterpart in this movie, Christian Bale, who has been praised for losing a crazy amount of weight for roles. He's also put on a lot of weight for roles and... I feel like it only matters what kind of movie you do to get praised for that because he did those both in dramas. But then you have Chris Hemsworth getting like obliterated. <laughs> so he actually looks like a god in this movie. But that kind of gets glossed over because it's a Marvel movie. Watch this movie and see just how shredded he looks the entire time and try not to be impressed by it. I think when it comes to ranking this among other Marvel movies, it's getting really hard to compare. I'll be honest. We're almost at 30 of these movies now. So I don't think at this point it's fair to compare all of these almost 30 movies. I try to just compare them in phases. And in this last phase four, easily top three in phase four. For me, it's just always hard to beat Spider-Man. But this one comes pretty close in delivering. Do you need to go watch this movie in theaters? It's hard for me not to watch a Marvel movie in theaters. I think that's where they really shine. I still feel like they are sporting events. However, in my theater, and myself included, I don't think there were particularly hype moments. Kind of what I was saying earlier about, I wish there was a little bit more adversity from the villain and that struggle. I don't think there were a whole lot of cheer moments in this movie and I think that makes it more of a reason to go watch this in theaters which that's kind of what I was surprised by I wanted to have that big epic roar people clapping there wasn't a whole lot of that maybe it was just my theaters vibe maybe it was because the dude next to me took his shoes off and was barefoot next to me maybe that took a little bit away from that but that's why you go to the movies I still think it is an event however I don't think the crowd was as electric as it was for a movie like Spider-Man No Way Home so if you weren't as excited about this movie as maybe some of the other Marvel movies, you may wait till it goes to Disney+. Plus. But if you do go, do stay because there are two very important post credit scenes. And finally, if I had to rate Thor Love and Thunder, I would give it 4.5 out of 5 Stormbreakers. I honestly thought this movie had the potential to be my 5 out of 5 movie for the year. Didn't quite get there. If it would have had a bigger hurrah moment, probably could have made it to a five out of five. But without a doubt, it is crushing it at the box office right now. Made $69.9 million in its opening day alone, even more the night before that. Probably be the third highest grossing movie of the year. With very good reason. It's been a really great summer so far. And we're, you know, really only kicking off July. So I've been seeing so many movies, I can't even get them into all my movie reviews. So... That is it for this week's. Next week, I'll finally get to my Elvis movie review, which I haven't done yet. So have all of that to look forward to. What a summer blockbuster season. And that is going to do it for another episode here on the podcast. I feel like this episode has gone longer than expected with the interview, and I couldn't shut up about Thor Love and Thunder. So I'm going to punt the trailer park for this week because a trailer drop that I'll probably spend another 10 minutes on. I'll just save that for next week. But I can't skip the listener shout out of the week because I do it every single episode. You can tweet me at Mike Distro. I love including anytime somebody tweets a photo of you listening to the podcast or in this case, something movie related. And I got a tweet recently after I did the Pixar characters that deserve solo films from 
Kyle Skew. And Kyle tweeted a picture of him, maybe girlfriend or wife, and they were dressed up as the characters from Up. And Kyle wrote, not one to jump on social media, but enjoy the podcast. And I thought I would share a fitting photo from the past weekend as we dressed up as the characters from Up for a Disney-themed party. Keep up the great work. Hashtag Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. First of all, Kyle, I am envious that you have friends that, to begin with, I'm envious that you have friends, but also that you have friends that throw Disney-themed parties. Like, that sounds really fun to me. I would go to one of those in a heartbeat, and your costumes look dope. The only time I've ever dressed up as a Pixar character was my very first Halloween. I was able to somehow convince my parents to spend money on a Woody costume And that's the only time in my life they've ever spent money on a costume from Walmart. And sadly, I outgrew that costume pretty quickly. So maybe someday I'll get invited to one of these and reprise my role as Woody. And second of all, really appreciate you listening to the podcast and jumping on Twitter, which you say you normally don't do just to send me that. It's like going an extra level there. So appreciate that, Kyle. Hope you had fun at the party and hope you keep listening to the podcast. As to the rest of the movie crew, I appreciate all the love and support, especially when you comment on things that really helps me out. And what I like to do is I like to post videos for my interviews and create a secret emoji that you can go and comment. Because sometimes I know it's just weird that you don't know what to say to somebody, even though you like the video and you want to show your support, you can just drop a like. But the secret emoji for this interview, which I'll be dropping a video of me talking to Chris Sanders. And since Stitch is an alien, if you want to go comment on the video on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, drop the alien emoji. That is the secret emoji for this episode. And I'll talk to you again next week here on the podcast. And until then, go out and watch good movies. Later. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.